0: You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class.
1: Book smart, but before we start, as
0: you saw, we have some high out and some wine, as tonight is Yud Shvat, the 10th day of Shvat. Mm-hmm. The 10th day of Shvat, which is the anniversary of first of all of the passing of the previous Rebbe, in 1950. A year later on the 10th on the of Shvat, it was when the Rebbe assumed leadership. And that's 73 years ago, 1951, when the Rebbe assumed leadership, that's when the Rebbe laid out his mission statement and his goal and task is, as he said, Basi leGani." his first discourse that he said was, Basi Ligani, Achai come to my garden, my sister, my bride. Where well, the Rebbe told us and said that this world, some people view it as a jungle, some people view it as something which is decrepit, falling apart. And don't forget, the Rebbe was saying this just a few years after the Holocaust. And the Rebbe told us, the world is really God's garden, and the task of this world, of us, is to bring God's glory into the world. And how do we bring God's glory into the world is through, of course, the observance of Torah and mitzvahs, but even more so, the Rebbe stressed the fact that this is the seventh generation from the altar rebbe from the first Rebbe, and just like in the time of Moses, where Moses was the seventh generation of Abraham, and Moses was the one that brought the divine presence into this world, So, too, it is our generation, the seventh generation, that's going to bring about the true revelation, the coming of Moshiach. And the only way that happens is if we get doing something, we got action. And the Rebbe at the time said, don't think that you're going to be able to sit back and putting your hands in your pocket and everything's going to be, and I'm going to do all the work for you. You're going to have to do the work to be able to get together and go to different places. And that's when the Rebbe continued to take to a whole new level, the uh, teachings of Hasidism and to be able to bring Chabad houses and Shluchim and so on and the Rebbe in fact in his first discourse brings huh? seven stories of the Chabad Rebis of each one of them the Alter Rebbe and so on one chapter one and all the different ways of Abbas Yisrael showing and he said that the Rebis told us these stories means that they're giving us the energy and the ability to be able to do it ourselves and therefore the way we are able to reach every Jew and make this world God's garden is with Abbas Yisrael so, L'chaim, L'chaim, on this special day that the Rebbe charges with the mission of making this world a special world, a garden, it's God's garden, let's do our job. But the difference between a garden and a field, a field is necessary. That's where wheat and things grow. A garden is a place of luxury. So let's have the luxury, which is the coming of Mashiach, now, Amen, L'chaim. Ah, you see? Started Made out of wheat. <laughs> you start with... because it's a necessity. <laughs> you start with a little Chaim, the class goes better. There you go. You understand everything better. <laughs> so, back. welcome to lesson two. We're going to be talking about the Medrash. Interesting, we just spoke about the Medrash. The first discourse that the Rebbe spoke about was the Medrash on the Song of Songs, Come to My Garden. But, we'll get to what the Medrash is about. Just to recap where we're up to, because it's all part of the timeline. Last week... We spoke about the first part, the Written Torah, the Written Torah, which is the biblical laws, the laws that were given to Moshe exactly. And as we explained, that there were two parts to it. There's the biblical laws, the Written Torah, and the Oral Torah, the Oral Torah, something the written word and the oral word. And as you can see on the timeline map that you have, the beginning that all encompasses, as we said, it's not parallel. The Written Law, and all of this is an explanation and expounding on the Written Law. And the oral law is what passed down from generation to generation. And as we mentioned, the written law is basically the 24 books of the Tanakh, called the written Torah, written by Moshe, and other prophets throughout the time and ages. Today, what we're going to talk about is the next part, which is only the section, which is called the Medrash. What is the Medrash? And I'm sure we spoke about last week, somebody asked the question, is it Midrash, Medrash? And I'm sure throughout your time, Studying, if you've been to any of these classes, or any class, or any sermon, or any rabbi, they've always been quoting the Medrash. Anybody familiar with any Medrash? No Medrash? No. Okay. Huh? Well, we just said a Medrash about coming to my garden, what the garden means, the divine presence. There you go. That's one Medrash. Just chew one off your head. Your favorite one. Okay. Oh, I'm sharing. No, I have one and I forgot. So, sorry. Okay, so I'm sure you've heard the word before. The word medrash, I'm sure everybody came across it before. But what is exactly the medrash? What does medrash mean? Is medrash a book? Is medrash a methodology? What is medrash? Medrash can mean, is it a particular series of books? Does it go in a certain time period? And we're actually going to see today and analyze and extrapolate what medrash is because the answer is they're both. It's a style of teaching, it's a methodology that we will actually be exploring and testing and seeing and enjoying today as we go through the different types of medrash that we're going to talk about. And it's also a period, a time period of when the medrash was taught. So let's take and let's analyze these two things. First of all, the word medrash. What does it mean? The word medrash comes from the word dirash. In English, the word for it would be exposition. To seek out, to explain, to tell in, to make it even further than what you see, to unwrap. The written law was given to us, so to speak, in a package. The medrash unwraps it. And when we unwrap it and decipher it and unpack it and to see what was in it, the medrash is that area of learning that expounds the text of the written law. So it takes the written Torah, as we discussed. The written Torah had a component, which was called the Oral Torah. And from the time of the written Torah came about, there was always parallel to it, the Oral, which was the explanations, the teachings, as we're soon going to see, of what it entails. So like we explained last year, the concept of, last week, the concept of the DNA, that every human being has this encoded strand of DNA and when you put it under a microscope and all the different type of algorithms that you have to be able to expound it and to see it, so too the written Torah is that DNA, so to speak, and the Medrash extracts from it laws, principles, and lessons that it has in it. Like we see in verse 1, text number 1, My words are like fire, says God, and like a hammer that shatters a rock, as the hammer explodes into many particles, so does one verse of scriptures diverge into many meanings. So you can have one verse, one word as we're going to see, maybe even one letter, can teach you mountains and mountains of explanations, but who unpacks that for you? That is what's called medrash. The principle of medrash is, the principle of the concept of the medrash is that it takes all those layers, and it takes all those things so when you have the verse, You look at the verse, you have something which is called Pshat. Pshat means simple interpretation. I look at it, it has a translation, but the problem is not always is the simple interpretation going to help me or understand it. Interesting thing, just a little of a sidebar, for example, Rashi, who is the foremost commentator on the Chumash, on the Bible, and Rashi, whenever he aims, and Rashi's goal is to give you only the simple interpretation. You will notice, however, that many times Rashi brings a Medrash. Why? And Rashi will say, and there's rules into Rashi. The Rebbe made hundreds of rules when it comes to Rashi. And one of them is that when he doesn't have a simple interpretation, or when the simple interpretation is not easily understood, he's going to go to Medrash. Because not always can we go with a simple interpretation. But the first level is to see the simple interpretation. Medrash then takes it to a step higher takes it to the expounding and going a step further. All those additional layers that are contained in the word, between the lines, before and after, whatever you don't see, that's all medrash. So now that we got, number one, what medrash is, medrash is beyond the understanding, so to speak, of what you see. What is the medrash? The medrash splits up into two types of medrash. There are a number of different types of Midrashic teachings that we have. So, first of all, this is just showing you the timeline. Oh, here we go. There are two types of Midrash. There is the Halachic Midrashim, as you see on the top, and then there are the Agadic Midrashim. And you'll notice also just over here, we'll get to it in a moment, but you'll see the timeline of the Halachic Midrashim end with the time of the Talmud, right after the period of the Talmud, about 400 years after the Talmud, while the halachic, med- agadic medrashim, go on for a much longer time. What is the difference? What is halacha? Halacha is the field of Torah law. And as we know, most of the Torah, the objective of the Torah is to tell us the laws that we have to behave and now what we got to do. The mitzvahs and the Torah. But how do we know all the laws from the Torah? The medrash derives from those laws The medrash helps us understand and takes a process of understanding and articulating and deriving from different words in the Torah, the particulars in how we do a mitzvah. That medrash, that halachic medrashim, as I mentioned, stopped after a certain period. And that is because only until the end of the closing of the Talmud were they able to derive from the Torah in the actual laws. However, Agada, the word Agada, which means explanatory or talkative, are non halachic teachings, and they are more moral, philosophical, or mystical teachings, as well as stories, parables, and narratives that come into the Torah. Like a gada. Sorry? Like a I, That's what the word Agada means, the Agadic Madrashim. Now, for example, just to give you a little bit of an example here, Medrash, Agadic Madrashim will include types of Madrashim. You can have legal expositions, historical narratives, moral and ethical, philosophical, parables, and Torah commentary, and lives of our sages. You can look in figure 2.1. You can see different references and examples of it. For example, a legal exposition, as we're going to talk about later today, where you put the Tzvilim. Historical narratives is Abraham's early years. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Torah until he's 75. It's all lamentish. Moral and ethical teachings, the power of our speech. Philosophical and mystical teachings, paradoxes between pieces of gracious, as we can talk about soon. Parables, gracious Rabbah, Torah commentary, biographical accounts, and so on. As we said earlier, the term Medrash is used as in, in these two types of forms. On one hand, it's a general type of Torah exposition, where it can give you all these different types of things, But on the other hand, it's also specific and records a certain level of Torah exposition and that covered a certain amount of time. Approximately from 100 BCE to 500 CE was the period of what we would call Medrash as you saw in your timeline before. Just to give you a better understanding and appreciation of what the Medrash is all about, we're gonna watch a little video which will go through some of the main characters of the Medrash.
2: Welcome to the branch of Torah study known as Midrash. Midrash comes from the Hebrew verb drush, to seek out or expound. It refers to the effort to explore, to explain, and expound on the Torah. It is also the title of an entire genre of literature generated by Mishnayek and Talmudic sages, the phenomenal Jewish scholars who lived roughly between 100 and 500 CE. Midrashic literature comes in two forms. One, halachit. These works document the intricate methods used to analyze the typically terse biblical texts containing the Torah's 613 commandments. The goal of a halachit midrash is to show how the detailed laws governing the practical observance of those commandments are derived. Two, agadic. These works provide a wealth of explanation of biblical texts and narratives, parables that clarify or illustrate a point, moral and ethical teachings, philosophical insights, mystical traditions, historical narratives and background information not explicitly recorded in the biblical text, and stories from the lives of the ancient sages. Much midrashic material was lost in the upheavals of Jewish history, but the surviving works form a library of their own. Here are the major midrashic works still in existence, including later-era anthologies in chronological order. Pirke Rabbi Eliezer explores the biblical events from the creation until the Jewish journey through the Sinai Desert. It is attributed to one of the Mishnah's most prominent sages, Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkus. Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael preserves expositions on the book of Exodus that were taught in the academy of Rabbi Yishmael Ben Elisha. de Rashbi offers the expositions on the book of Exodus from an alternative academy, that of the much beloved Rabbi Akiva. Its recording is attributed to his disciple Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the famous author of the mystical Zohar. Seder Olam, meaning world chronology, chronicles Biblical and post-Biblical history from creation until the 2nd century Bar Kokhba revolt against the Romans. It is attributed to Rabbi Yosif ben Chalafta of Sephoris. Sifra provides key expositions on Leviticus which focus on Kohanim, Jewish priests who serve in the Temple. The book is also called Torah Kohanim, The Laws of the Priests. Its partner volumes on the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy are known collectively as Sifri. The insights in these volumes were taught by the school of Rabbi Yehuda, a disciple of Rabbi Akiva. Maimonides identifies the Talmudic sage, Rabb as the compiler of Sifra and Sifri. Midrash Rabba is a series of 10 separate works that provide textual expositions, historical narratives, and moral teachings structured as commentaries on the five books of Moses and the five scriptural scrolls, Song of Songs, Ruth, Esther, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes. These anthologies were compiled between the third and 12th centuries and recorded teachings of Talmudic sages from the land of Israel from the third and fourth centuries. Midrash Tanchuma is a foundational book offering expositions on the five books of Moses. It is named after a fourth century author heavily quoted in the work Rabbi Tanchuma. The Talmud is not an exclusively midrashic work, but its legions of volumes include a vast treasury of halachic and agadic midrashic material. Midrash Tehillim offers commentary on the Book of Psalms. Its era of compilation is unknown, but it is cited in works as early as the 11th century. Yalkut Shimoni, a voluminous midrashic anthology covering all 24 books of Tanakh, was compiled by Rabbi Shimon HaDarshan of Frankfurt, Germany. Midrash HaGadol is an anthology attributed to Rabbi David Bar-Ammol Al-Adani of Yemen. Ein Yaakov, an extraction of the agonic sections of the Talmud, was compiled by Rabbi Yaakov Ibn Habib of Spain, and Greece. The sheer number of surviving Midrashic works spanning 15 centuries testifies to the Jewish scholar's remarkable commitment to identifying and expounding the wisdom and guidance contained in God's Torah.
1: Wow.
0: Okay, so that was a bit of an overview of what you had of all the different Midrashic works that we just saw. Mm -hmm. Uh, The term Midrash was applied to the teachings that was quoted by the sages of the Mishnaic and Talmudic period. And as we saw the time frame was <clears throat> the entire time frame from the 3,300 years ago from Sinai until today that process began, began with Moses with the written law and he passed it down through the generations. But you will notice that the actual Madrashic as we mentioned earlier, the actual Madrashic period of it is only from the Mishnahis through the Talmudic periods. And as you see over here on your little... Uh, Time chart here is It's from 100 BC 8 to 500 BC. More than 1,200 years since the revelation of Sinai, the oral law was exclusively oral, as we mentioned last week, until Rabbi Yehuda Nasi came and codified the Mishnah, and then later on was expounded into the Talmud, and only then did the oral law only start to be make, uh, documented. And for the reasons that we're going to discuss next week. But consequently, the earliest midrashic works were compiled in the years following the completion of the Mishnah, in the times of the Talmud. As we'll talk about the Talmud when we get to in the next uh, few lessons, the sages who lived afterwards. Just to show you that little period there. So, as we mentioned, the oral Torahs remained exclusively oral, and only during the time of the Mishnah era did the documentation begin. Just catching up with the slides here. Here we go. The teachings of the sages of the compilation of the Talmud, that means until the Talmud, once the Talmud was completed, and there are Midrashim that are until Talmudic times, the Midrashim that came after Talmudic times, though they are still considered aigotic Midrashim, they do not carry the same weight as the ones during the Talmudic era, just because of the quality of the sages, as well as many things got lost, and the, fa- and the ability to be able to develop And to continue to talk about the um, to delve into these different types of halachic midrashim did not have at that time as well. After the Talmud, there were no longer any more legal expositions that were taken out of the words of the Torah. So, as we're going to learn later on, we're going to see that there were certain ways how we derive laws from the Torah. In up until the Talmudic era, that means during the Talmudic era, they were able to analyze, and a lot of the Talmud talks about analyzing, looking back and forth to these sections and these parts of the Torah. So the Halachic Medrash ended with the time of the Talmud. The Agadic Medrash continued even after the time of the Talmud as well. So what we see over here is, when we talk about Medrash, Medrash so far tells us that its expositions, whether Agadic or Halachic, in understanding the written law, and it run concurrent together with the written law and it was usually only transmitted orally until we came to the Talmudic period. When we talk about medrash, generally, when most people mention the word medrash, what are they referring to? Usually they're talking about mystical parts of the Torah, parables and stories. Just to give you some examples, as we mentioned earlier, Abraham's life in the Torah begins at age 75. The whole story that every Jewish child knows that Abraham looked to the sun and he said, Are you God? And you, you God? And then he looked to the stones and looked at the rocks and lived in a cave and he was thrown into the fire by Nimrod. That whole story is not in the Torah. It's learned out of two words, Ur-Kazdim. Where he lived in Ur-Kazdim, that's how we know the whole story of, of, what, of, of Abraham being thrown into the fire about the first Jew. The first mention of Abraham in the Torah is when he's 75 years old. The Mendresh is what tells us that whole story. That is called Agadic Mendresh. Mm. Or the any, any other fascinating parables that you find in the Mendresh, and we'll get to some, How whether they, they can't. Huh? How did they Because of the oral law that was passed down from one generation that the rabbis discussed about expounding and exposition of the Torah, as we're going to see in a moment. I
1: have, I have a question. Yes. There was um, another
2: story with Abraham where um, he had, um, you know, his father was like. Um, the minister for Nimrod yeah and he uh, knocked an idol over and then his right daughter. that's all in
0: the medrash oh
1: cool that, all yeah.
0: those stories that's exactly yeah. my point all yeah. those famous stories that you know yeah those are all in the medrash that means they were transmitted orally from one generation to generation they're part of the oral law but that's what we would call medrash that's not part of the simple interpretation when i learned the chumash if i learned the written law it doesn't tell me laws that story is not a law That story just tells me about the lifetime which we would call the Agadic part of the Torah. Are
1: there similar stories for Isaac? Yes, there's
0: similar stories. Some of them we do know, as we just saw. Many Midrashim were lost. So we only have what we have. it's basically like, his neighbors saw it and they passed it from Jerusalem. Not not necessarily his neighbors. Not his neighbors. How do we know the Torah? Let's just go back a second. The way we know the Torah is because God, especially until Moses was born, was because God dictated to Moses what should write in the Torah. Together with what God dictated to Moses what he should write in the Torah was given with him a oral law as well, that Moses was not supposed to write down, that he only passed down to the sages. So when Moses taught the Torah four times to every single one of the Jewish people, he told them what was written, and then he also told them, and that was passed down from one generation to the next until it was finally documented in Talmudic times. So for 1,200 years, you had medrash coming along, but it was only then discussed, elaborated what this person learned from his teacher. Now, the more Jews there were, each Jew or every Jew passed down different stories to their generation, and what the medrash did was called together all those stories and put it together. As we'll soon going to see, get a few samples of it, you'll get a better feeling of what's going on. Halakhic medrashim are no less fascinating. Because halachic Madrasim today, what we know about in halacha, in code of Jewish law, how we behave, and many of the halachas, as we're soon going to see later on in today's class, we will see that also these are derived, how I learned from certain verses, what I meant to do into practical day-to-day halacha. Later on, we have some sections that we're going to talk about. So let's take for a few moments, we're going to look at the first one, which let's take, for example, A halachic, a a medrashic parable, and here is a classic medrashic parable, one that you probably heard before, but let's take it into context.
1: The
0: parable is as follows: Text number two on page sixty-four. When iron was created, the trees started trembling. Said iron to them, "Why are you trembling? If no tree among you enters into me." That means if I don't have a handle for my blade, not a single one of you will be hurt. What is the Medrash saying here? The Medrash is telling us an iron says to trees. Here's a parable. Iron's tre- the trees are trembling when iron was created. Why is iron trembling? Because iron can act down trees. What does iron respond to trees?
1: Can cannot be without trees.
0: I can't work unless I have one of you. What is the parable for this? It's obvious. We are strong. Nobody can hurt us. The only one that can really hurt us is ourselves. Is ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now let me ask you a question. This seems like an obvious, obvious lesson that you can learn from a parable. But why can't the Talmud or the Medrash just say it very clearly? Why do I need to use a parable? a parable? Why do I have to say it in a story? Why do I have to create that there was a, a tree and iron? Just say it. You stick together, you stay strong. But every teacher will tell you, and every lecturer, sermon, always has a good story. A Especially visualizer. Jews like to have stories.
1: <laughs> Why do we put stories?
0: Why do we put parables? Because the more stories you have, the more parables you have, the more real it becomes to the individual.
1: Depends the Medrash
0: is about teaching us lessons. Mm-hmm. The Medrash is about making something real, making the Torah real to you. And because of the Medrash is about making it real to you, Something that's abstract. If I were to give you a lecture and say, "You know, you guys got to stick together." Thank you very much. Have a nice day. But all of a sudden, I come telling you that there's an iron and there's a tree. It gets you thinking. It starts saying, "Okay, what does it mean? Why does it mean?" You start analyzing it. You start thinking about it, and all of a sudden, that that language speaks to the individual that they should all of a sudden take it to heart. A parable is a disguised package. And what you have the ability, and what's another great thing about a parable is, is that just because to me, it gives me one lesson, to somebody else, it can give them another
1: lesson.
0: Mm -hmm. And And the more I unpack it, the more lessons I can learn from it. So it can mean to stay together. It can mean that you have the ability to knock. The only way you can knock down a tree, if you have an enemy, is if you only use the enemy's tactics. And there's so many different layers that I can use from this parable. All I need to do is unpack it. And it's for that exact reason yeah, the Rabbi Sheer, that Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi says, and he says in the Hasidim, and when he was telling you, he was writing a letter to his Hasidim in, um, to in Israel at the time, and he told them and encouraged not only in Israel but all over he was telling encourage them that between Minch and Ma'iriv they should study the Agadic sections of the Talmud, which was called Ein Yaakov, like you saw that we had over there, too. one of them. On the screen. What? Why? Why? Oops why did he tell them to study it and he says because he encouraged them to study a and that was because as he writes the words over here you can see it in text number three most of the esoteric wisdom in the torah is hidden in the agada of the book of anya most of them that means through the passages we discover the great insights that they contain when we look at the esoteric teachings of the torah we look at the parables they're not just parables about trees and iron, but they're actually giving us life messages that if we unpack them enough and we continue to unpack them, we can be able to get to learn so many different insights and ideas that help us in understanding and appreciation and cultivating our relationship with God as well as understanding ourselves, understanding the situation around us, And that's why the medrash was given in these parables and stories, and this is part of the Oral Law, because Oral Law means it was passed down from one generation to the next to be able to make it relatable to every single situation at a particular time. We will now take another medrash and study another sample of such a medrash, which we're going to look at, and we're going to see how many different layers we can learn from it. Text number four. Text number four, we'll learn it, we'll read it, and then we'll ask you to see what you can come from it. Text number four, the battle of the angels. And God said, let us make human. The verse says in the Torah, the book of Genesis, put the verse up there, let us make humans. Who did God ask? Who's led us? Said Rabbi Simon, when God came to create the first human being, the ministering angels formed different factions. Different parties said, some of them said, the human being should not be created. While others said, the human being should be created. Thus it is written, kindness and truth encountered each other, quoted in Psalms,
1: mm-hmm.
0: righteousness and peace about it. Kindness said, create them, because they, they do acts of kindness. Truth says, do not create them. They are full of lies. Righteousness said, Create them, for the act of righteousness. Peace said, do not create them, as they're full of quarrels. (laughs) (laughs) What what did God do? He took truth and threw it to the ground. Uh Thus it is written, you cast truth into the ground, quoting Daniel. Mm -hmm. Said the ministering angels to God, Master of the world, why do you insult your signet? May truth rise, said God, may truth rise from the earth, thus it is written, Truth spouts forth from the earth from quoting psalms. Now look at this, look at this quote. Look at this piece of the of, of, uh, What lessons? What is it talking about? What kind of ideas uh, are coming up from this? Anybody? One for starters, I'll get you started. Purpose of life. Mm. What's life? What's truth? What's kindness? Which is more important?
1: Imagine they, truth they, says
0: yeah. your signature ring is God. Signet ring is kind. It's truth. Where did they come from? Because where did before, the come from? where? Why is he saying? Who were the angels? Where, okay. did they, yeah, where did the
1: angels come from? So you from? can before look at this
0: madras. God only created the world. So the angels? What oh, part oh, of the angels? Oh. So if you look at this madras, this madras, you can spend a lifetime just discussing. And literally. Where were the angels? What era the angels came before the world's creation? Are they, are they spiritual? Are they soul? What level?
1: What went before the world's creation? Okay. But now that you
0: learned this medrash, keep this medrash in mind, and we're going to get back to it. But the point is that just from this medrash itself, every time you learn this medrash, you can have more questions and more ideas that come to mind. Whether it's the question of life, purpose of life, purpose of, life, purpose of truth. God is true. God's signaling this truth, and over here he's throwing it to the ground, so is truth suspendable or truth is not suspendable? Is kindness more important? Is righteousness more important? Is world of lies, or is where did angels come from? Why is God even consulting them? Who put them there? Where did they get from?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we
0: see over here that the mendrish, that the more we analyze a mendrish, and the more we see a mendrish, The Medrash is not just airy-fairy, but there are actual real-life messages in every single part of the Medrash. And while we'll get to some of this basic understanding of what we just mentioned, we're going to look at other different types of Medrash and see what we can explore and get back to this Medrash in this Sunnah. But the question that some of you asked before is, how did it all come about? Where did the rabbis get these teachings from? How did they come to understand? Now, of course, it was given with the oral law, But as we said before, the oral word and the written word were concurrent, were parallel to one another. They were always studying the same Torah. One is based on the other. You can't have the oral law without the written law. So how did the rabbis discover, and especially over the time, where did they come from, and where were their principles? And I remember last week somebody asked the question. If the rabbis were just able to extrapolate from the oral law to be able to come to some type of law, what stops any individual to say, well, this makes sense, and therefore I'm going to extrapolate and make this law. And therefore, there are certain methodologies that were used by the rabbis, restricted to those levels, Mm -hmm. to be able to learn and understand anything that we know today in the oral world, especially in the medrash. Text
1: number
0: five. These are the laws that you shall place before them. Rabbi Yishmael says, there are 13 methods to which the Torah was expa- is expounded, which were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Rabbi Ishmael says, there are 13 ways, that means the Torah is the monumental word, the written word, and taking these words of the Torah, there are 13 methodologies that according to Rabbi Yishmael, and that the oral law that was given together with the oral law by Moses on Mount Sinai, Not only was the oral law given, but it was given together with the rules. That means if you want to learn A from B, here are your 13 principles, how you learn it. In fact, according to some commentaries, Rabbi Leeser, the son of Yossi the Galilean, says there are 32 ways of doing it. The thirty-two ways may be more of an expansion of the thirteen, but there's the (laughs) thirteen principles. We say it in our prayers every single day before we start. Rabbi Yeshmale, Mabashlesh, Savindhasir and Nidrashis, there are thirteen principles of how we can expound and expo and talk about the different types of ways how we learn from the Torah. So everything that we learn in the Membersh, in the Oral Law, has to be within the perimeters of these thirteen ways of learning. Today we're going to take four of those 13 we're not going to do all 32 we're not going to do all 13 as it will take a long time we're going to take four samples of how the torah is derived and how the written law gives us the ability the springboard and the ability to learn the oral word from it what are those four so if you look at figure 2.3 there we're going to learn about four of these ways the first one is called, and we're going to get through them. I'm just going to give you a little bit of an overview of what it is right now, and then we'll look at each one individually. The first one is called Kal <laughs> In English, it's called logical deduction. The second one is called Ribui Umirit, textual exposition. The next one is called a Hekish, Zeyrashav Asmichus, which we call association. And then Altikra Vayikra Vayakri, it's called alternate readings. What does this mean? So let's go through each one of them and we'll give some examples. Some of them are actually in the written law itself and some of them, we'll we'll see where they come from. The first one is a logical deduction. Logical deduction is a case called Kal v'chomer. Literally translates, Kal means light or easy. Chomer means straight. What does it mean a logical deduction that I say? That if true by B, then it's certainly true by A. That means if in a stricter situation, I for sure say this is the situation, then in a lenient situation, I would also definitely say it's that. A classic example of it is found in the 44th chapter in in the book of Genesis with the story of Joseph. What happens? So what happens over here? It's actually quoted, this is actually in the Torah, this the Homer. Mm-hmm. And what does Joseph tell his brother? What did the brothers tell Joseph? Behold the money that we found in the opening of our bags. We returned to you from the land of Canaan. Then would we steal gold or silver from your house of your master? So let's get a little background of what happens here. This is an exchange that's found in the Torah, the book of Genesis, where Joseph and his brothers are meeting up with each other in Egypt. As we know, Joseph was sold by the brothers to Egypt. The brothers realize there's a hunger. They come down to Egypt. They see that the viceroy of Egypt is there selling the food. They have no clue that it's their brother, Joseph. And first they come, they buy the food. They accuse them to be his spies. And he says, the only way that I'll know that you're not spies is if you go back and you bring your younger brother. On their way back, they all notice that the money that they paid to buy their food the back was back in their bags. They come back down to Egypt with Benjamin. They come back with the money that they want to return. That was returned to them. Mm -hmm. And they uh, sit down, they have lunch with the Viceroy of Egypt. As they're leaving the guards catch up with them and they catch Benjamin with the goblet that was found in his bag. And over here they're accusing Benjamin for stealing the goblet. The Torah over here argues and says, the brothers argued to Joseph and said look, the money that you returned in our bags we brought back. Did we have to bring it back? No. So if we're so honest
1: mm-hmm. that we're returning
0: money that we didn't have to, would you accuse us that we're stealing? There's a cow. What's the cow? Which is the lenient, so to speak. That money I didn't have to, I brought back. How much more so money that I... That's, I know everybody who says doesn't belong to me, I wouldn't take. That's what's called a logical deduction. So in this case, they were saying, the brothers returned the money found in their sacks, certainly they wouldn't steal silver goblets, which is a more severe scenario. Let's take another scenario. This terminology is what we call Kal the Homer, a logical deduction. And therefore we say the argument is, if the case is in A, so then of course it would apply in B. Let's take a case where this would apply into a law. This is a Gaddik. Now let's take this same scenario and apply it into a law of the Torah. The law of the Torah says in the book of Exodus as follows. Text number 7. And this we'll call the roadside assistance law. It's not uh, AAA. <laughs> when you see the donkey. When you see a donkey of your enemy collapsing under its burden. And you're inclined to desist from it. Assisting him. Assist. You must assist with him. Okay. So what's the scenario? The scenario is you're walking down the street and you see a donkey that collapsed because those days, of course, they would be carrying loads of donkeys, uh, donkeys would be carrying the load and it's telling you you're supposed to stop, do it, stop whatever you're doing and help the owner of the donkey, unload the donkey's burden and then help him back, get it back on so that he can get back on his feet. This obligation is one of the 613 commandments to help somebody in need on the side of the road. They say a very interesting story talking of which uh, helping people on the side of the road. The Baal Shem Tov students were one studying together. And the Baal Shem Tov taught them that anything you see in life, you always have to learn the lesson how you can serve God. And once the Baal Shem Tov students were sitting and a learning Torah, and uh, one of the students here crying from outside. An old peasant had his wagon got stuck in the mud. Mm-hmm. And there was no AAA for them to call, so he went to the closest synagogue to get some help. He knocks on the door. He sees a bunch of scholars sitting there. He says, "Come help me." The peasant, the Polish peasant, said, "Come help me." They said, well, "We're scholars. We don't. We can't. We can't." And he responded, and he said, majits majit, You can, you can, but you just don't want to. Mm-hmm. When the students of the Balshemtov heard that, they reminded themselves, and they said, "Yes, we have to learn a lesson how we can serve God." Many times we throw up our arms and we say, we can't, uh, it's not for me, I can't. Mudge, it's mudge, you can, you can. It's just a question, do you want to? Mm-hmm. So when you see a friend, back to our case over here, the interesting thing is, how does the Torah present the case? Whose donkey does the Torah say it is? Enemy's. Your enemy's donkey. What about if it's your friend's donkey? Should I help? No. If the Torah tells me I have to help my enemy's donkey, how much more so that I have to help but if it's my friend's donkey. So when the, you don't have to say, well, oh, only I have to help my enemy. If it's my friend, I'm off the hook. In the contrary, <laughs> the, the Homer teaches us that when you see a donkey of your enemy collapsing under the burden and you are inclined to desist from assisting him, assist, you must assist with him. The law of assistance applies to one's enemy and therefore logically, it applies to your friend. But here's a little interesting where it gets interesting. Text number three. Uh, text number eight, I'm sorry. Text number eight. Within the rules of a logical deduction, there's another rule that comes in, which is called Dagay. It is enough. It is enough that a matter derived from a law should be as strong, but not stronger than the source of the law. Essentially, what Dagay is telling me is as follows I have deduced from here that I have to help my friend, that I'm not off the hook from helping my friend. Why? Because the Torah said, if you have to help your enemy, how much more so I have to help my friend. What happens? Let's say you have two cases. You're walking down the road, and on one side of the road, your enemy's donkey fell. On the other side of the road, Your your friend's donkey fell. Who do you help? If I say the a Homer, I say a logical deduction, I should help my friend. But over here, Dio says, I cannot say my logical deduction is stronger than what it says in the source. What does it say in the source?
1: The your enemy. enemy.
0: The only way you know your friend is only by a deduction. Therefore, who do you have to help? You have to help your friend, your enemy first. Why? Because your enemy is what says clearly in the Torah. Your friend is only a deduction. A logical deduction. And you cannot say that the logical deduction should be any more strict than the actual source. Follow? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here we have in the case where one is confronted with both the written law and the derivative, the derivative cannot be stronger than what it says clearly in the total. Let's go to another case. Still talking about donkeys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's move on to a second madrashic method that we uh, spoke about before. Textual exposition. Which we call riboy umirot. I have a place in the Torah where it says a lot of stuff. Why is it telling me a lot of stuff? Because it's coming to tell me something extra. That means we know that the Torah is exact. There's no word in the Torah that is superfluous. Every single letter in the Torah is there for a purpose. And if the Torah has a duplicity, seemingly a duplicity, that means the Torah is here to teach me something that I wouldn't have known without it. So here's, let's try it. So let's go to text number seven again. Text number seven. What does the Torah say? When you see your donkey or enemy collapsing under its burden, and you're inclined, to desist from assisting him. Listen to the words here. Assist, you must assist. Make up your mind. If I'm assisting him, why I must assist? What's the duplicity? Why is the Torah seemingly telling me some extra words? Assist, you must assist with it. Why is there a need to say that? Just say, help him.
1: <laughs>
0: assist, you must assist. The very fact that the Torah is telling me, you must help him. Ozev, tabzev. The duplicity in the word is coming to tell me an extra thing. Number two, the fact that it says with him. What do you mean? Help him. Just say help. Why? Help with him. And over here we have two extra laws that we learn just from the duplicity. Text number nine. If one unloaded and reloaded, unloaded and reloaded, even four or five times, one is still obligated to unload again. As it is written, assist, you must assist. If the animal's owner walked away and sat down and said, eh, it's a mitzvah for you to do it. So you want to unload it, then unload it. In such a case, I'm not obligated because it says, with him. What do we see from over here? I'm unpacking you now The Medrash helps me understand the duplicity of the words. Why do I need an additional clause? Very simple. Assist, you must assist. To what extent do I have to offer assistance? That even if I take it off once, and it falls again. And I take it off again and it falls again. I take it off again and it falls again. I still have to help it. Why does it say with within? Because if the guy says, Okay, I'm gonna go take a break, you fix it for me, you change my tire, have a nice day, then you don't have to help him. Why? Because it says Imli. So just from these three extra words, I've learned two extra laws that the Torah tells me. Number one. I have to do multiple rounds of assisting the person. I can't just say, okay, I did my part. I did what it says in the tower. I helped him unload the donkey. Have a nice day. Even if it takes a few times. Assist, you shall assist. Not only once, but twice. Number two, email you. Make sure he's there helping you do it. You said you need to help your enemy, right? But what if they're your enemy is there to get you? And, uh... Then it's not called helping. <laughs> but, and then he, no, and then if something happens to so you, you help him, but then he tries to get you. Again, he's not helping. It has to be email. So, so why you Remember, it has to be email. It has to be with him. It has to be with him. And in fact, that means that he actually appreciates the help. That means if it's going to cause other things. In fact, just from this word email, I didn't go into it here. We're not going into the whole Achik discussion. But the Talmud has... Many other laws just from the word ima with him. He has to be with him. He has to want him to do it and everything else. Let's say your enemy says, I don't want your favors. Don't come to me. You don't have to force yourself to do it. I'm just picking, showing. No, I'm just
1: imagining. No, no, I'm just,
0: what I'm showing you is the point of this is not to get into the halachic detail. What if that show is that how the Medrash is using the words of the Torah like yes before, how do they know it? Here's how they know. I was just taking an example.
1: Yeah, I, am, I, I get you, well, I'm not I you're in this one, for example, right? And an Arab, I'm purposely saying an Arab. Right? There you are people, the lines. unfortunately, art. they do that. Yeah. You have change the time, but then they sh- sh- come and dr- no, enjoy the Of course we're not talking about that. Okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's go to the next one.
0: <laughs> the third method that we mentioned before we're going to do is the association method. And here's a halachic. The next method that we're going to talk about of the Torah Exposition is deriving a law by association. That means that if the Torah chooses to associate laws A, B, and C, and put them in context context next to each other, that means they all have relevancy, and we can all learn laws from A to B and to C. That means the Torah has numerous ways of doing this. One of them is juxtaposition. That means the very fact that these three verses are together means that these three verses have something in common. Another way of explaining it is sometimes you will find the Torah says that it uses the same phraseology. That, if, for example, it uses the word like this, or this in case A, and it uses the same phraseology in case B, then it's called Xayr or By tradition, we know what those two teach each other, and that's how we know it. Give you a little, just a random example that's not in here. For example, the way we know today that when a person gets married they use a ring or they use money to be able to get married is because acquisition, because Abraham, when he made an acquisition, used money, therefore any acquisition is done with money. The same idea we'll learn for a document, the same idea we'll learn for other things as well. What we're going to look at over here is today another way of using juxtaposition, the very fact that these verses are placed together teach us how we're going to do it and the method of association. So when two laws are adjacent to one another, we are going to apply laws from law A to law B and to law C. Where is this case? And the case is going to be about the passage of the the Shema. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're all very familiar with these passages. The passages are as follows. The Psalm text number 10, Set these words upon your hearts and upon your souls. Bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as flackberries between your eyes. Teach them to your children to speak of them when you sit down in your home, when you travel on the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Write them on your doorposts of your home and on your gates. So in this, in these, um, in this verse right here, you have five mitzvahs. Five mitzvahs. Number one, bind them as a sign on your hands. They shall be flackberries between your eyes. You then have about the studying to your children you have about the laws of Mezuzis, you have about saying the Shema in the morning and in the evening five mitzvahs well let's take a closer look here you look over here there's two ways of how we over here it says the mitzvah of putting tefillin what does it actually say in the Torah how you should put it tefillin bind them for a sign upon your hand and as blackberries between your eyes a sign upon your hand So this is the incorrect way, of course, but you've never seen anybody wear Twilam this way. Why? Why does everybody wear Twilam that way? Where do you see that? The Torah says a sign on your hand. Where's my hand? Right here. Between my eyes is right here. Where do we know that this is the correct way to put on Twilam? Where do we get the location from? How do we know that? So the Medrash says as follows. Text number 11. Not only that, let's go even a step further before we even go there. What hand do you put your children on? Okay, the men here can help us with that. On your left, on on your the left hand. hand, if you're a righty. On your right hand, if you're a lefty. Why? Why not in your right hand? Why in your left hand? Why do you put it on top of your head over there? Where do we know all these laws from? From Midrashic expositions using the, applying this rule of association. So this way, that you see everybody put on in here, how do they know that? Not because it says it in the Torah. The Torah is just put on Tzilin. Because the Medrash uses this method of association to be able to tell us how we do it. And let's see it in the Medrash. Text number 11. On your hand means the upper arm.
1: But perhaps
0: it means literally on the hand. The Torah therefore teaches us Set these words upon my heart. We are speaking a place that is aligned to the heart. What's aligned to the heart? The bicep, Which is aligned with the heart, the upper arm. On your arm. This is the left hand. You say, but well, maybe it's the right. We know this from the juxtaposition of the two verses. Bind them and write them. Just as writing the mezuzah. How are you writing with your right hand? So too, when I put on the twill, what should I be doing? Using... My right hand. So therefore if I'm using my right hand to put on the tefillin, what hand am I putting it on? My
1: left hand. My left hand.
0: If I'm a lefty, I have to use the hand that I write with. Right? right? Mm-hmm. So what hand am I using to the what hand am I using to put on the tefillin? My left hand. Mm-hmm. So therefore I have to put it on my right hand. Nice You see? By association. Between your eyes. Meaning on the top of your head. You say maybe the top of your head. Perhaps it means literally between your eyes. The Torah therefore teaches us. You shall tell you, the children of the Lord of God, do not gash yourselves, not make as between your eyes for the dead. Just as there, in the case of the prohibition, to tear out one's hair, in the mourning for the dead, the phrase is between your eyes, and it means the top of your head, so too the phrase between your eyes, in this verse means the top of your head. Okay. What are we using here? Again, so let's take these three cases. Let's just see what woman said. You have the three associations here. What does it tell us? Number one. The verse the Mitzvah tells us that it should be on your heart. I can't put my tefillin on my heart. That means it has to be next to my heart. So I put it on my arm that's facing my heart. Then I go to Association Method 3. I use the verse that instructs me to put the tefillin, which is followed by the mezuzah, The one that I use to write the mezuzah. How do I write the mezuzah? Whichever hand I use to write should be the hand that I bind my tefillin, which is my right hand from I'm a righty, my left hand from a lefty. The same idea also talks about, how do I know that between my eyes means on top of my head? Because there's a law that concerns, that it says in the Torah, that the Emirates, when they used to mourn for the dead, they would pull out their hair. The Torah says, do not be like the Emirates, they pull out their hair from between their eyes. Do you have hair between your eyes? Only if you have a long eyebrow. usually you don't have ear between your eyes and therefore what's it referring to the ear on top of your head so the same way over there between your eyes what does it mean on top of your head so do in the Torah says over here between your eyes what does it mean on top of your head what have I done here I've taken the laws and I've learned how to place my tefillin based on the process of association juxtaposition and association I've used the words and that's exactly what the medrash did the Medrash took the written law, gave us the halachas, gave us the laws based on a, these principles that Rabbi Yishmael set forth for us and explained to us, and we now have the law of what we
1: do. Yes. So where did it say, for example, that you need to a that's Minach. that's huh? a custom. That's a custom. Because I wanted to ask you because when I was in Israel, they told me over there in Jerusalem to do eight times.
0: That's okay. why you'll know that you'll notice the tefillin being on the bicep. Right. That is the midst of the Torah. Here and here is the midst of the Torah. They cut the. the the amount of times we roll on the screens and everything, that's all men have. That's all custom. That's why, right. for example, if somebody has a broken arm, but they still have a muscle, but they have to plug this part, they have to put it full an arm. That's still the mitzvah. What happens if a person doesn't have a head? Does he still put it on his head? No. What? If he doesn't have an arm? If he doesn't have a head, does he still put it on his arm? No, he's dead. Oh. Uh, just making sure you're no, listening. No, I just, thought they were in I the just room want room. to make sure you're listening, that's all. I just want to make sure you're listening. Put it on, it. Let's go to the fourth one. <laughs> and here's the fourth one. And the fourth one, is what we'll explore today, is probably the most fascinating out of all of them. The fact that every single word or sentence in the Torah can be read in numerous different ways. Not only read in numerous different ways, but also understood simultaneously many different things. That means you can have one word that can give you at the, a plethora of different items, and different ideas, just from the one word where you read it. There's a popular English grammar book that has the title Eat, Shoots, and Leaves, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What's the point of the title? To emphasize the importance of proper pr- punctuation. And if you look in 2.5, you see the pictures that he shows. I think it's a panda bear, Eat, Shoots, and Leaves. And then you see the guy shooting, eats, shoots, and leaves. The difference <laughs> so is where the, the Godfather. exact same, exact same words. Yeah. The difference is Different context, where the is. right? Or well, you know the story about the woman who told the editor, the wife of the editor told her his husband. He says, "Can you go to the store and buy me milk? If there's eggs, buy me a dozen." He comes home with a dozen milk. Oh,
1: <laughs> oh God! Oh no! Right? Okay. With the Kafka. <laughs> <laughs> we all told
0: a matter of the comma. Where do you put it? There you go. So over here we have the same idea. You have the caption on the left that describes the diet of the cuddly panda. And the caption on the right, on the, on the right is, describes the scene of some mobster movie. No, it's
1: Both Scott of these.
0: Oh, them. there you go. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm not familiar. The, no, it's not called the one. Okay. You know better than I do. Yeah. Both captions consist of the same three words, but the difference is only... We are the commas. (laughs) Now consider this fact. The Torah does not have any commas, any periods, any semicolons, any colons, any punctuation. Nothing at all. No dashes, apostrophes, quotation marks, capital letters. Guess what? There's also no vowels. Unlike the English language, (laughs) we are Hebrew, where words itself, where letters itself are used as vowels, the Torah does not, the aliphate does not have that. There are no vowels in the aliphate. There's no dots and lines, there's nothing behind it. Of course, when you read in the sinner, you see the vowels, and they place the vowels before you. But if you open up a Torah scroll, any of the 24 books of the Tanakh have zero vowels in them if you open up in their actual scrolls. That means, if you look at the letter bet, that letter bet can be bet, it can be vet. You look at a shin, it can be shin, it can be sin, tough or suff. And it can actually make a difference in translation as well. So what that means, just take for example, just take for example the difference between Hebrew and English. If you look in figure 2.6, it gives you three options. The difference, to take those words, each shoots and leaves. That's when you have the constants, the vowels, and the punctuation. Now take out the punctuation, just the constants and the vowels only, each shoots and leaves. You still can read it. Take out the va- take oh, leave, take out the vowels and only leave the constants. Can you read the word? No. Absolutely not. In English, there's no such thing as a root word. Mm. Of course, you can find a root word. Let's say, what it wasn't Latin or whatever. But if you take out the vowels in Hebrew, if you take out the vowels of a word, takes for example, yomer. I take out the prefix, the suffix. I have left with Amar. There's no vowels. Every word is a constant. Every letter is a constant. So imagine I told you to figure out what line 3 says in your book over there, by eats uh, eat shoots and leaves. Would you be able to figure out what it says? No. No. Well, that's the way you have to read the Torah. So if you ever wonder why a Torah reader makes mistakes sometimes,
1: try reading it and figure it out, and then you'll see it. <laughs> okay. That's the reason in Israel you learn k'tiv chaser. Huh? That's the reason in Israel you learn k'tiv chaser. What's One second. So
0: now the Torah, of course, has vowels that we see in the Chumash. The Torah not only has vowels, but it has something called truck, which is called cantilations. Mm-hmm. And the cantilations tell us where we need to stop, where's the end of the verse, where's the beginning of a verse, where's the beginning of a story, where's the beginning of a chapter, and so on and so forth. But how do we know those vowels and cantilations? Not because it's written in the Torah. They were given by Masora. They were given by tradition. Mm-hmm. Passed down when Moses taught the Torah, he taught them. Where we stop, we are the beginning. If you open up the Book of Maimonides, for example, a few chapters in the Book of Maimonides explain and show where every single stop is in the Torah, which verse begins, where it ends, and that's how we know today where we have about the different scrolls and so on. So the scrolls, not only the Five Books of Moses, but any scroll, many communities they read the half from a scroll. Or, for example, the book of Esther mm-hmm. also has no vowels, no cancellations mm-hmm. no pu- no punctuation. It's just one, just letters. The obvious question is, since we know today the correct vowels, why aren't they written in the tongue? If I know today what they correct, it'll make it a lot easier for a tongue reader. I'll tell you that much. Mm-hmm. Just put it in. Put it in with a pencil. <laughs> put it in with a pen. An the, the scribe that writes it should put in the vowels, put in the cantillations, and it'll be easier to understand. The Radvaz, Rabbi David Ben Zimbra, who served as the chief rabbi of Egypt from 1517 to 1553, and we actually mentioned him on Monday's class, those about being in Egypt, says as follows. Very interesting. Somebody asked him this question, and to one of his responses, text number 12. You asked, why are the vowel marks not written in the Torah scroll? Seeing that it was all given from Moses on Mount Sinai, likewise, It would have been fitting that the cantillation marks should have been written in the Torah, so that the reader can read smoothly, without error. Indeed, the cantillation marks will sometimes explicate the meaning of the text. Good question. I agree with the question here. The answer? The letters without the vowels and the cantillation marks have numerous meanings. Various possible compositions and even contrary readings. Each and every letter contains facets within facets and mysteries within mysteries. If the Torah was vowelized, it would be finite and limited, like the matter that has been given to definitive form, and it could not be expounded. This is why the sages say there are 70 faces of the Torah. For this reason, we are not permitted to write the vowels and the cantillation marks in the Torah scroll, but they are recorded in the Chumashim, In keeping to the principle, it is a time to act God, so that the rule of the reading of the Torah should not be forgotten, as done regarding the rest of the oral Torah. An interesting thing he says here. Technically speaking, we shouldn't even have a Chumash with the vowels. The only reason why we have a Chumash with the vowels is because you can see, practically, that people forget. People forget what the proper pronunciation is. Therefore, unfortunately, it had to be written down because people were forgetting what it is. So because people were forgetting what it is, that's why we wrote it down. The ultimate reason of why it's not written down, he explains, is because once you put a vowel to it, what have you done? You have limited its translation. The Torah has many different translations. There are many different ways of each word can teach you. And because of that, it doesn't have any vowels in the Torah. Because every single letter and word in the Torah is telling you more than 70 meanings. We're going to take one of those samples today. That we're going to see a duplicity or a double interpretation in the same exact words and giving us a better understanding and un- an appreciation for what those words mean. So, let's look at the words. The words are up right here: Yeshev Olam alokim chesed veems This is a quote. From our from Tehillim. Our first three examples were medrashic expositions, right? And they were more halachic. They gave us laws. The one that we're going to read today, this one now, the fourth one, is going to be an agadic midrash. So we so far used a logical deduction. Mm-hmm. We've used a textual exposition by association. We did alternative meetings, and now let's go on to the one of an agadic midrash, which is going to give us an alternative meeting depending depending on how you read it. So the verse of Tehillim, this is from the written law, Tehillim, mm-hmm. the book of scriptures. And it says as follows. May he dwell forever before God. Kindness and truth shall be summoned to guard him. Reading it on the surface, what's going on here? King David is asking God. What, what is King David talking to God? He's expressing how wonderful it is to feel, to bask in God's glory. You dwell before God forever. Kindness and truth is before God. He's talking about how beautiful it is to bask in God. Like most of the hymn talks about King David's expressions and desire to always be in God's glory. But now let's examine these words. What is the first word? Yea, shave. I can translate. To sit. He will dwell. To sit mm. or dwell. I can also translate it. May it be settled, from the word VaYeesha, and he settled there, LaHashev Yeshuv as a settlement to be settled. Olam can mean forever. Olam can mean also the world. Man can mean summoned, and man can also mean the question: Who will? Who will? Who will be the one? YinzeruHu. From the word to guard, but also comes from the word to keep to practice. You see the exact same four words. But to guard and to keep is kind of the same thing, no? Um, not necessarily. Guard means like to protect, and the reason why I'm protecting it may be because I want I to keep it, it.
1: But it's more like to cherish.
0: Okay, but at the same time, to keep it means to practice. In Sir, so who means to practice in that case? Because while to guard means I cherish it, therefore I guard it but I also have a way that I can say I want to practice it, and therefore I want to be able to be part of it. What do I see over here? That this same exact verse now, I have two translations. Translation A, May he forever dwell before God, kindness and truth, summoned to garden. Translation B, May the world be settled before God, who will keep his kindness and truth? Totally diametric opposites with like interpretations. Exactly from the same passage in Tehillim, exact same words, will give me two different explanations. One explanation is going to tell me how lucky I am to be in front of God. The other one tells me who even comes before God. Who's even there? What do we see from here? What's going on over here? The Medrash explains. The Medrash explains that on a deeper level, in fact, this verse represents a dialogue between King David and God. And it's giving us a profound philosophical, sociological dilemma. A dilemma that is still today a hot button issue. 3,000 years later. Let's see what it is. King David says as follows Almighty God, Master of the world. May the world be settled before you, God. Why don't you balance your world? Make it equal, rich and poor? This is a dialogue that God and King David's having between God. What does God reply? <coughs> if such were the case, who will practice kindness and truth? If all were rich, all were poor, how would there be an opportunity for human kindness? What's the question over here? A question that seems like seems like versus socialism and capitalism.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: King David says the world should be socialist. Everybody should be equal. There should be no rich. There should be no poor. Everybody should have what they need. What does God come along? He says, no. The reason why I need rich and poor is because I want kindness. Now let me ask you. King David, don't you think he makes a good argument? What's King David saying? Why can't we just be peace? Why can't everybody get along? Everybody has what they need. Yeah. God says no. Like a yeah. If I have the perfect world, there's no opportunities for kindness.
1: There's no for, uh,
0: But what's the problem? What's the problem with that? Why can't I have it? Why can't there be a perfect world? And so, what? There will be opportunities. The only reason why you need kindness. Why do you need kindness? Because people don't have. If everybody would have, I won't need kindness. So the question that we have on God is, what's the problem? No opportunities for kindness.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. What's the problem? So let's go back to what we spoke about, the first Medvish that we mentioned. When we spoke about the one that you can spend a lifetime talking about. Mm -hmm. Where God takes truth and throws it to the ground. Do you remember who were the opposing teams there? Who were the opposing teams at the time? Truth and kindness reappear here. Last time, truth was against kindness, right? Mm -hmm. Truth said, don't create Mm men!
1: Kindness said, create
0: them! So that somebody can have kindness. It seems like this dialogue is part of that same dialogue. The human being, who in the first narrative was a source of kindness, what else is a source of (coughs) kindness? What else is the human being besides being a source of kindness? What does truth say? Full of
1: lies.
0: (laughs) Evil. If I keep kindness, what else do I get? I also get this human being that's full of lies. How did it come about? And here is one way how we can understand it. Of course King David wanted what King David wants. And we all want that perfect, balanced world. But let me ask you a question. If you wanted a really perfect world... If God really wanted only a perfect world, should He have created a world then? No. The moment I create the world with human beings, what did I create? Imperfection. Fallacy. Problems. Corruption. Mm
1: -hmm. If God wanted
0: perfection, if God wanted equal, then why create a world? Nothing is the greatest perfection. Nothing is the greatest perfection. The moment I create a human being, the moment I create something that I needed to create something that has to be fixed up. What do I mean by this? Nothingness is the most peaceful uh, state that can possibly be. Ask a person, what are you doing today? Nothing. <laughs> I'm on vacation. I don't have to do anything. I feel relaxed. There's no challenge. There's no worrying. There's no going. There's not
1: opportunity. There's nothing. Yeah.
0: But what else are you doing when you're doing nothing? Exactly. But nothing. Nothing's happening. If the world was, if, if when we have a world with human beings, what's the moment? What happens? Automatically, there's competition. Automatically, there's rigorous uh, lies that goes on. All of a sudden, that whole equilibrium is totally disrupted. Once humans are in the picture, the moment humans come in the picture, the world is havoc. Why? Because humans, by definition, are selfish, materialistic, and falsehood exists. So falsehood goes into the world, and I don't have to probably prove it to you. Little wonder why the angel of truth said, "I don't want truth. To, I don't want humans to be created." why were you why was truth against humans being created in that members because they said the moment humans are created truth goes out the window
1: what did god do
0: he took truth and threw it to the ground and said if i have truth i can't have human beings why because god cherished truth god cherishes truth it's god's signet green as the torah says the talmud says God's signifying is true. That's why the first letter of the alphabet is Aleph. The middle one is Mem, The last one is tough. Makes the word Ms. God is truth, is the absolute truth. But God says, one second. As much as I cherish truth, and as much as truth is what I would wish for, but if I want kindness, if I want charity, if I want righteousness, then I need to create human beings. And I have to throw truth from the ground. And I have to be, able to be able to allow truth to come back on its own once it's challenged. That means if something is not challenged, it's not really true. If something is not questioned, it's not really true. If somebody doesn't have the opportunity to not do it, it's not really charitable. What makes it charitable? What makes somebody righteous? When they have the opportunity to do something that's unrighteous and they still choose the right thing to do. What makes somebody kind? They have the opportunity to be selfish, Mm -hmm. to keep it to themselves, and then they decide to be kind. What's something true? What makes something true? If everything's exactly the same, is there a difference between truth and lies? Is there a difference between kindness and non-kindness? The only way you can actually define and see what something is kind, true, or righteous is when you have the opposite, when you have the corruption that's there. Create the human being, you got the corruption. You got the lies, you got the opposite of kindness. Now that the human being decides to be kind, now that the human being decides to be righteous, there you have the reality, there you come out, and that's what and all of a sudden that comes through the truth.
1: What's a tranquil world? Nothingness
0: is most peaceful state we could possibly imagine. Why did God create the world? A world of strife, God desires kindness and righteousness over truth and peace. Mm-hmm. Only in a world that's populated with conflicted human beings can righteousness be practiced. Basically, just to finish this point, what God needs us to be able to bring that level of righteousness, to bring truth back up from the ground. Mm-hmm. And how does that happen? Only because He created us with that desire not to do it. And then when we decide to do it, we've then retrieved it and brought it back to its original purpose of creation. Yes? That's your question. But when first God created Adam and Eve, right? So they really were until they ate from the apple or whatever. Wasn't it perfect that wouldn't
1: have stayed if they didn't do
0: that? It's a very good question. And we actually discussed this in a previous JLI course, uh, yeah. Secrets of the Bible. That mm-hmm. then your question, just to rephrase your question. Is technically, it wasn't evil only created after the sin of tree of knowledge. The difference, and just to give it in one, two sentences, it's a whole discussion on its own. Evil existed, the moment God created the universe, evil existed. Its effect on the human being only took upon, came after the sin of the tree of knowledge. Meaning, mm-hmm. the fact that the human being should have the inner challenge between the evil inclination and the god inclination, and God and constantly be tested by it, came because of the tree of knowledge. That's why it was called the tree of knowledge, that the human being was then consciously tempted by evil. Before the sin of tree of knowledge, evil existed, but it wasn't tempted by it. That's why, if you remember the story of the snake, the snake had to actually push Eve against the tree, that she should feel and see evil,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because she was not so to speak, aware motivated. Huh? Aware she was aware of it, but not motivated by it, not excited about it, only once she had that temptation. But the very fact, let's even go a step further, the very fact that she was tempted by it when she wasn't allowed to have it shows you that evil existed. So the very—and so that, that's why, if you look, the problem, and that's why Adam is, so to speak, blamed for that, because Adam said, don't touch the tree when God said, don't eat from the tree. And when she touched the tree, she saw that nothing happened to her. So she saw mm-hmm. evil is not mm-hmm. as bad as they make it. And let me ingest it. Right. Not let it just be on the outside. And once she ate it, then evil became part evil of the human being. Yes. Before the sin of the tree of knowledge, we were tempted by evil, but it was not part of our psyche.
1: Mm-hmm. But basically it's only after Adam ate all of from the apple. Both. So, but Both. what would happen actually if we would not eat the apple? What if? <laughs> <I know. laughs> Text number 16. Let's see it in
0: the words of the Rebbe. The attribute of truth, which is the truth of God as it relates to the spiritual process of creation, is limited that it only manifests itself where the divine truth is recognized.
1: Yeah. So because
0: the material world is a place of falsehood, a place of where the divine truth is not recognized, the attribute of truth, said, do not create. But the quintessential truth of God is not constrained in any way. It is not limited to places where divine truth is recognized. Therefore, even a person's mundane household of fears, in which a person engages solely materialistic purposes, and in which therefore seems to be a pack of lies, have no connection with the truth of God, they're also bound by divine reality that expresses itself the truth when a person, despite the fact that they experience only materialistic natures, these pursuits utilize from the goodness of holiness. When this happens, there's no deeper <coughs> truth. There's no deeper truth than when a person is able to take something which is in the depths of the ground, he's able to take the selfish human being who desires things which are worth nothing, who has involved the materialism. And within the materialism, they see the true reality of godliness. That's what God says. Let truth sprout from the ground. Hmm. God takes truth and throws it to the ground. You don't see truth arrayed on the face. But when you work, And you, within the materialism, find the truth in what you do. You're bringing out the purpose of why God put you in this world. Truth, child, this is one of the ways that we can understand the Medrash. This is the narrative of the battle of the angels that we spoke about in the beginning. We said, what's this talking about? Who are the angels? Where are they coming from? What's happening here? This is only one. Imagine all the thousands of more ways that you can learn about it. This is only scratching the surface of what it's all about. So just to summarize what we learned about today, We explained the one component of the Oral Law, which is the Medrash. And we explained that the Medrash is less more than just parables and stories about the Torah, but they're lifelong messages. The Medrash is also a methodology of how we expose and understand and extrapolate the laws of the Torah, the stories of the Torah, and explained that there are two ways of understanding Torah, the Halachic Medrash and the Agadic Medrash. And in next week, we will Now take another major component of the Oral Law, which is the Talmud. As we said, part of the Talmud is the Medrash, as you remember. Mm -hmm. However, both Alachic and agadic, but much of the Talmud contains much more than that. And we will discover what those additional elements are in the Talmud. We will also learn why, after the Tanakh, the Talmud is probably the most important work in the entire library of Jewish learning. So next week, same place, same story. That's next week, the Talmud lesson number three. Thank you, Rabbi.